Wow, we've got some serious talent in this room. I have no, one of these things is not like the other. That's how I'm feeling right now. This is so good. I knew, I knew they were good the first 30 seg, 10 seconds of, of playing, and I thought, whoa, what have we here? So thank you. I was so helped this morning getting my heart inclined toward the Lord, so I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Well, A.W. Tozer said a long time ago that the most important thing about a man is what comes into his mind when he thinks about God. Man, it's hard to believe that today. In light of the fact that I think most people don't think it really matters that much what you believe. I mean, Tozer is talking there about a person's thoughts of God as being the most important thing about them because he believed that everything else flowed from that. So if the most important thing about a person is their thoughts about God, that means those thoughts better be true thoughts. They better be the way God thinks about himself that we learn to think ourselves, thinking God's thoughts after him. We're not convinced belief is all that important. We've bought into this idea that all that really matters is what we do. It's very pragmatic, the American mentality, that we do and that's what matters. You know, it, the, the pragmatism of the American mentality is what's true, is what works. Be nice people, be good people, right? Love God sort of vaguely and generally, but don't put too much emphasis on ideas, belief, doctrine. Doctrines become a bad word. It ends up dividing people and arguments start over it and before you know, wars start over it. And so we have an aversion to doctrine, to belief, to fundamental ideas as first of all being all that important at all. It's about how you live your life, isn't it? No matter what you believe. As if the way you live your life isn't absolutely fundamentally connected to what you believe about life and about people and about what matters and fundamentally who God is because he's the one who defines all those other things. I think Tozer's right. I think he would say that even more passionately than he did half a century ago. I care very deeply that we understand who God is and that our ideas about God go deep. The first album I ever had was called the Steve Miller Band. Anybody know the Steve Miller? Yes. <laughs> you, no, you didn't. Are you serious, Dave? You played with Steve Miller at his house. Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. Oh, my goodness. So Steve Miller Band, my first, my first album I ever got was Steve Miller Band. And I, I have a confession to make. I, my favorite song on that album was Big Old Jet Airliner, right? Big Old Jet Airliner, Big Old Jet Airliner, don't take me too far away. Anyway, so I, I for years sang that song with passion. And instead of singing Big Old Jet Airliner, I sang the words Big Old Chad and the Lineup. 
I have no idea why or what I was thinking. Like, who's Chad? It, why was he? How big was he? And what kind of lineup? Right, like a police lineup and. It, I mean, years. I mean, you should have heard me as a kid singing, big old Chad and the light. I mean, giving it all I had to completely nonsensical lyrics that weren't accurate or true to the real lyrics. You know, it wasn't, I don't think they were on the album. They would have been, I, if they were, I would have read them. But it wasn't like I could Google the lyrics now. Like now I was just stuck, right? One of my best friends, there was a song, Band on the Run. That was his favorite song, and for years he sang Sand on the Rug. <laughs> he does, I don't know why, but we do that. One of my favorite things is to catch people singing the wrong lyrics to songs. There was a Paula Abdul song years ago I caught my wife singing the wrong lyrics to. <laughs> it, it, she, she lists all the reasons she, she uh, doesn't love her husband. I'm saying it's husband. Uh, uh, she says, it's not, it's not the weekends in Rome, it's not the diamonds and pearls, it's not, and, and one of the lines is, it ain't the trips to Brazil, trips to Brazil, and I caught my wife with passion singing, it ain't the trips to the zoo. <laughs> I said, time out, did you just say trips, do you think Paul Abdul's husband taking her to the zoo and she's putting that in the same category as weekends in Rome and diamonds and pearl. I mean, the zoo's fine and all, honey, but come on. Did you think about that at all? I mean, there are entire songs people sing completely ridiculous words to just because they don't know them, like Louie Louie, right? Nobody knows the words to that or what Michael Jackson's saying and keep on, da 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 don't stop till you get home. And we just keep singing, right? That doesn't matter at all. When it comes to songs, really, it's funny, but it doesn't matter if you say words that aren't the right words or words that you haven't even thought much about. I remember, you, I always get red in the face when I exercise a lot, and, and for years people would say to me, man, Eric, you're red as a beet. And do you know, it wasn't until I was in my 20s, I was eating beets one day, and I thought, wow. That's about as red as red can get. And I thought, red is a beat. That's what that means. I, I had never even thought about it. Not once. I had never thought about what red is a beat means, which is funny, but it doesn't matter. But when you say, isn't God good? When you say, glory to God. When you say, isn't it good that God loves us? When you say, God is sovereign. You better know what those words mean. You better know some definition to those words. You better know the right words, and you better know what those words mean. And I find that most of us in our day where ideas are discounted as unimportant, where we don't really think it matters what you believe, we're not typically even one or two questions deep on what those words mean. There's almost a disdain for definition these days. Well, I think we need to care very much about the definition of especially the words we use for God. I think Tozer's right. I, I think what comes into our mind when we think about God means everything. 
And, and here's what else he says in that same first chapter of his book, Knowledge of the Holy. He says, let's not think that we're not prone to idolatry because we don't bow before visible objects of worship. Here's what Tozer says. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. They begin in the mind and where no overt act of worship has taken place. We nevertheless are bowing before idols and worshiping them with thoughts of God that are unworthy of him. Who is God? It's the most important question you'll ever ask. And getting that answer right is the most important answer you could ever find. And we need to be people who are devoted to deep and accurate understanding of God from God's word, which is his revelation of himself. We live in an age that has deified the self. We have made the self. It's not just humans. It's the self that is now the determiner of truth and reality itself. If this is my perception, that's what's true. We even use phrases like, speak your truth. Anytime you qualify the word truth with any word like your, you're actually changing the definition of truth as humans have always understood it. This reality outside of you, whether you believe it or experience it or not, which is true all the time. No, we now have my truth and your truth, and truth is now this thing that's determined by the self, determining things that don't align with even biology or reality or the laws of physics at times. And so we've got to back up and say we need to be humble under God's perspective on things. I want to spend this time together, these four times we have together this week, just getting some good, solid definition to a few words we use to talk about God. The first one this morning is holy. Holy. What does it mean to say God is holy? Now, that is an attribute. We call that an attribute of God. It's a word God uses to describe a characteristic about himself. There may be other ways, but I think there are at least six ways God defines himself, God reveals himself. The first one is just words. Uh, he uses words. He, he speaks directly. Sometimes through prophets, we have inscripturated words of God in the Bible. He directly speaks, Adam, where are you in the Bible? The second way God reveals himself is through actions. I, I'm sorry, attributes. Attributes. He says, I'm holy. I'm gracious. I'm, I, I'm a God of wrath. I'm a God who loves. These are attributes. These are words, adjectives, if you will, to describe who God is. The third way he reveals himself is actions. God acts, and in acting, he reveals himself. He creates and shows himself to be the creator. He brings judgment right there in Genesis 3, two, uh, three chapters after he creates. He judges, and he shows himself to be a judge. 
He establishes covenant. He redeems. He brings consummation to everything. So God acts, and when he acts, we need to be asking, who are you in that action? Too often, we just focus on the action and don't say, who is God showing himself to be in this action? The third way God reveals himself is in images. He'll say, I am uh, like I'm a consuming fire. God describes himself as a rock. He's a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day to the Israelites. So images are, get our right brains going and our creativity and our imaginations going with images. The fifth way God will reveal himself is in titles. He'll say, I am father or king or shepherd or warrior. And then finally, God reveals himself through names, which takes things to a very personal level. There is a world of difference between saying, hi, Dave, and hi. Is there not? I was a substitute teacher. I did that for years. The hardest job I ever had by far I've had 27 jobs, some substantive jobs in my life. I've had very difficult jobs. I was a commercial diver, and I worked construction. I worked on a pile driver. You know what a pile driver is? Drives piles in the, in the, in the ground. I, I, uh, I painted. I was a painter. I mowed lawns. But by far, the hardest job I ever had was teaching seventh grade social studies as a permanent sub. It was incredibly hard. But when I was subbing, I realized the most important thing you could do is get the names of those kids as quickly as possible for class control, right? Because there's a world of difference between saying, Timmy, sit down and stop hitting him. And hey, hey, you, you in the blue, hey. There's a huge difference when there's a name because name takes things, a name takes things to a personal level. It's putting your hand out, and God uses names for himself, like Yahweh, and El Kanah, jealous God, and El Shaddai, and of course, Jesus Christ is the name he gives his son, right? So these are the ways God reveals himself. Now, when I went through that list, did anything strike you? What struck you as I went through that list? Anything of importance that you want to highlight for us? This is a great size to interact. Hello, everybody in the back. The sunshine, good to see you all. Any, any, anything strike you of as important as we went through it? I'm, I'm interested to hear. What do you think? The word, the creative word. Yes, the creative word. So that's interesting. So the word doesn't just reveal. The word creates as well. And, and the word brings power and sustaining of the universe. Yeah, good. Anything else? Awesome. Say again. Father struck you. Yes, Justin. Yeah. Father. Why, why did Father stick out to you? You do have a good father. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Not everybody does. And so right, right away we say, okay, there's, there's a pot- potential problem here because your idea of father, rather than God informing what that means, we can project that on God, right? So if you didn't have a good earthly father, that could be a really tough title for you to deal with, right? And now you need to transform your idea of that title based on who God says he is with all those other things he says about himself. And I would say those words and attributes come in very importantly. Good. Other, other thoughts? Yes. Yes, that's so good, isn't it? God's so kind in coming at this understanding of who he is from different directions and different emphases and in different ways our brains work. 
yeah, there's, there's a beautiful kindness in the diversity of the way he's getting us to understand who he is. Beautiful. I hope you noticed as we went through that how interdependently these all work, right? So what are attributes? Well, they're words, aren't they? And, and what do those attributes make you think of? Actions. And if you think of father, before you know it, you realize, oh, that's a word. And I can't think of father independent of a, God, a father providing and protecting. So now you're to actions. And before you know it, those things are all images in your mind. And so I, I make distinctions between these so that we are able to open up God's revelation of himself to us in these ways. But I don't want to so overdo them that we don't realize how wonderfully interdependently they're working. You really can't think about one of these without thinking of all the others at the same time. And that's what we're actually after. And we'll see as we dive into the Bible now that how God beautifully weaves these together, okay? If you'd open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, I would love to look at just a few highlights in the Exodus story. I mentioned in the interview time this morning, we're going to focus on the book of Exodus. Now, I am very concerned that we get to the right conclusions about who God is and everything else for that matter, but that we do that in a way that is consistent with what God says about himself and his word, which is why we open the Bible and we go to it now. But I, I love to be able to go and focus on a portion of the Bible. And the portion we're going to focus on is the Exodus. And we're going to ask one question, who is God? Who is God in the Exodus? I choose Exodus, as I quickly mentioned this morning, because it's a massively important story in the overarching story we find in God's redeeming work in history. The Bible is a history book. It's a, a book about God in history redeeming a lost people. And so it's so important to realize, as Richard was saying this morning, where we are in this story when we're reading something, and it too often will parachute in, uh, oblivious to where it is we are located in the story, and we will just pull it out of there, not understanding it well enough in its context. And it can get us in, in all kinds of trouble when we do that. And so it's so important to have a whole Bible understanding of who God is. And here we have the Exodus story, which is a massively important story in the story of redemption. It becomes this, this centerpiece of how God is and how God works in restoring and redeeming and relating to and providing for and saving his people. It's what Jesus' ministry is called. In English translations, the word is often translated Jesus' departure. He'll refer to his departure, maybe referring to his resurrection, more likely his ascension, but, but his departure is literally his exodus. And any Jew hearing that word would have thought of the Exodus story when Jesus reflects on his own ministry. And Jesus' exodus leads to our exodus, our leaving captivity and slavery and bondage to sin and death and into freedom and forgiveness. That's what Jesus provides for us. And so the exodus story becomes so important and central in revealing God, in revealing his redeeming work in our lives. But let's pick it up in Exodus chapter 3. You all know the story. 
because you saw the movie Prince of Egypt. Hopefully, however, you know it from the Bible as well. If you had children, especially during that time it was big, yeah, you probably saw it many times. But, but here's the story of the Exodus, beginning in Exodus 3, verse 1. Lord, help us as we go to your word. Amen. Exodus 3.1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now I want to pause there because, first of all, here's Moses tending sheep in the wilderness. Not the best job when you were raised in the courts of Pharaoh in Egypt in the lap of luxury, and now for 40 years, he's tending sheep. No doubt, not what he was expecting his life to look like. And and beautifully, Richard set the stage this morning, referring to the life of Joseph. Before the 40 years of Moses here, we have 400 years of Egyptian captivity. The, The book starts by saying, and there was a pharaoh in Egypt that didn't know Joseph. It was horrific slavery they had been part of for centuries now. And here we are, 400 years of captivity and then 40 of wandering in the wilderness tending sheep, for Moses in particular. The Bible can be a little like Sports Center sometimes. Ever watch Sports Center? Watch, ever watch highlights? You know, my mother used to watch the news every night. The only part I cared about was the, I don't know, three minutes of highlights of the day of sports that we had. Sports Center on ESPN gets all the key sporting events down to 30 minutes, well, probably 24 minutes when you include commercials and stuff. 24 minutes, right? All the highlights, which means every game they choose to highlight gets, what, 20 seconds? Imagine if all you ever did was watch highlights and then you actually go to a game, especially a baseball game. (laughs) You're like, really? What in the world? Seventh inning stretch. I got to get out of here. This is taking forever. This is so boring, you'd say. Right? Where are the highlights? Well, they happen four or five times per game, right? in a two and a half, three hour game. What is this, right? The Bible gives highlights and we're about to look at maybe the key highlight in Moses' life until this point, right? So, when you read the highlights, like any good sports fan will watching highlights of sports, you've got to load in everything you know about the game, right? The history. Load it in. Don't just think, or else you will think life is a series of highlights. It's not. It's mostly the stuff in between. The highlights set the stage for all the other mundane things, but if they're lived in light of the highlights, none of it's mundane. It's all lived in light of a God who meets us powerfully and personally. So watch this highlight. You ready? Dan in it. Dan in it. Here we go. Verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. 
He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Oh boy, here we go. Anybody who thinks the Bible's boring must not have ever actually read it, because it's not at all. This is thrilling. What's going on here? Here's Moses, who's called in the superscription of the only psalm we know he wrote, Psalm 90, Moses the man of God. Here he is in this key moment in his life, met by God in the wilderness in a burning bush. I basically want to spend the rest of our few minutes together this morning pondering the image of the burning bush. We said one of the six ways God reveals himself is through images. And this is a vital image to understand God. It's a paradigm. It's a pattern. It's a way God reveals himself in its essence that if not understood, it'll mean you'll miss God most of the time. You've got to understand what's going on in this burning bush. You've got to. First, we see fire. So you think, okay, in the Bible, when we see fire revealing who God is, What are the attributes? And this is what we need to do. When we read the Bible, we need to say, what is this teaching me about God? We need to be constantly on a character of God quest, hunting for any interesting, important, truthful evidence of who God is. And so when we see this burning bush, let's not just say, cool, wow, rad, awesome. And then just move on. Say, what is this teaching me about God? And the first thing then is to say, this image of fire used frequently in the Bible points to key attributes of God, like what? So when you see certain images, like a rock, when God says, I'm a rock, you don't say, oh, an inanimate object with no brain. You don't say that, right? You say, okay, that's highlighting certain attributes. So let's just take rock. When you hear God as a rock, what attributes is that pointing us to? Strength, yes. What else? He's solid, which means what? Immovable, good. Secure, stable, faithful, dependable, right? Yes, all these key attributes of God. So when you see fire, what are attributes that are being highlighted? Power, absolutely. Fire is a powerful thing. Other places like James talks about fire, uh, comparing it with the tongue in the way the tongue can be powerful like fire can and get out of control like fire can, right? We, we know that around here, right? Good. Other attributes of God that are highlighted by fire? The image? What is it? Cleansing. Cleansing, yes. The purification that God brings. That purifying effect is actually the result of an attribute, which is what? Oh, heat, heat ha- 
has that purifying effect like that old hymn that, uh, that, that his draw, he consumes the dross as it rises to the top of the, the precious metal, making it more precious good. So purification. Who brings purification so often in the Bible? The Holy Spirit, right? And so holiness is the attribute that brings the purifying effect. And that's exactly what happens in this story. So, so holiness, the purification that holiness brings, good. Oh, other attribute of God highlighted by fire? A consuming fire, right? Good. He's consuming, uh, pointing to his magnitude probably, that, that he, he envelops everything. Good. Other attribute? He brings light, good. The pillar of fire brings guidance. It brings light, excellent. Warmth, good. There's one key attribute. The wrath, right? The doctrine of hell has, has fire imagery, not primarily so we realize what hell is like, but so we realize what God is like and his disposition towards sin and evil. That's why the doctrine of hell is a vital doctrine fundamentally is because it points us to God's justice and God's holiness that always goes with his wrath and his justice, right? So, so wrath, holiness, the purifying effect those things have, the, the guidance and the light he brings, these awesome attributes of God in this story are shown to us in the midst of a bush, a bush, not only a bush, like these, these are bushes around here, in the desert. Anybody from the desert? Anybody from the desert here? Yes, a whole group back here. What's, where are you from? Where? 29 Palms. 20, that's desert, people. Yes. So who is, who is from 29 Palms? Tell me your name. Denise, Denise, would you just throw out some adjectives to describe desert bushes for us? No. Scraggly. Say again. Rough. Dry, yeah, dry. Scraggly's a great one, Denise. Yeah, you have an excellent vocabulary. Yes, scraggly, yes. Dry, rough. Probably there should be a picture of a desert bush in the dictionary next to the word unimpressive. Right? Um, do you find it interesting and odd that God chooses to use the image of fire to show his wrath, his holiness, his power, his guiding light, and he uses a desert bush to do it? Every time I see a desert bush, I say, is that thing alive? It doesn't look any different than the bush bouncing down the road I just drove by, right? That thing is really unimpressive. It's humble. It's frail. This is how God reveals himself. I call it humble holiness. Humble holiness. See, Moses is perplexed. He spent a lot of time in the desert. He spent a lot of time with desert bushes. No doubt he started lots of fire using that wonderful kindling, the 
even a living desert bush provides for you. And he's perplexed at how it is that this fire imaging these awesome things about God and this bush somehow are coexisting. Because normally it would either be out goes the fire or bye-bye bush. You can't have both. And with God here, we have both. The bush isn't consumed. And Moses says, I've never seen this before. This isn't how it works. If I'm going to have fire, I'm not going to have a bush. And if I'm going to have a bush, I can't have fire. I can't have both at the same time because fire consumes the bush. But he says, how is this happening? And so he no doubt is eager to find out and he starts to charge toward the bush and God says, stop, Moses. Stop. You don't realize what you're approaching right now. Stop. Take off your sandals. My dad... Uh, his, his dad was a developer and so he for a while was flipping houses he would buy a house he'd fix it up and then he'd, and then he'd sell it and my brother and I were the very cheap read free labor that he had well free, he would say free how about three meals a day does that sound free and a roof over your head so that I'm just letting you in a little family conversation there and, and so so free I'll give you free yeah you want free so so my brother and I worked for him, and we would do all the, the, the nasty, climb under the house, jack it up, level all these things, but we did all this work for him. I inherited not a lot of his mechanical ability, but all of his impatience. <laughs> and, and one of the things that I learned from my father that was a terrible thing to learn, you got to be so careful when you're a preacher, because people could take almost anything you say as somehow permission or affirmation. And what I'm about to say is not permission or affirmation. This is very stupid that I've taken on as well, that my dad did. My dad would very seldom turn off the power when he would work on something electrical in the house. You know, he'd just work around us. That, that just makes some of you just cringe, and some of you say, yeah, I do that all the time, right? So, but, but 110 volts... And I'm not given permission. I've been zapped lots of times by 110 volts. And I'm told it can kill you. But it, it mostly just scares you, in my experience at least. Again, not permission. Uh, so, but one time my dad was steaming off wallpaper around an outlet without turning off the power. And he was aware of it, and it sort of adds to the adrenaline rush of the whole project when you do it that way. He's steaming off wallpaper around an outlet because he didn't want to turn the power off because then he wouldn't have light. And it, so he's just doing it. And my, mother, my stepmother didn't realize she came in and said, oh, this is exciting. We're getting rid of the, the wallpaper. I'm going to take a photograph of my husband taking the wallpaper off. So she takes the photograph, not realizing the flash was going to go off. And it almost scared my dad to fall off the ladder because he thought that there had just been some sort of electrical arc. It was just a flash on the camera. But that's a dumb thing to do. Um, but there's certain voltage you'd never do that with. I also was a commercial diver. And and there's, there's some electricity with, with electrical wiring that, that you can't even get your hands around that will kill you in an instant if you come near it. And you got to know the difference. When I was a commercial diver, there were certain jobs we would do. We wanted to be so careful about the electricity that divers, when they were going to dive in the water, which conducts electricity, we would pull the fuses and lock them in our dive bag. 
to make sure there wasn't even the possibility of electricity on this job site. And it's as if God is saying here, Moses, do you think you're just waltzing into just household current here? Do you realize what you're approaching right now? Moses, oh, the church in our day needs to hear this. So profoundly, we need to hear who God is. What time are we done? No, no, no. When are we done? We're done. Two minutes. Here we go. You ready? Here's... Oh, yeah, yeah. So we're done at noon. No, when are we... We're... No, I was supposed to be done five minutes ago. Let me pray. We got all week. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing grace and that with you there is no time and you're eternal and we can trust you with everything, Lord, even the timing of, of our days and the amazing ways you care for us, Lord. Lord, we are so thankful for your amazing grace. We're thankful for your holiness. We're thankful for the joy of being your children. Lord, would you instill in us a deeper awareness of your holiness, a deeper understanding of who you are so that we would have a healthy, holy fear of you so that we approach you with the kind of reverence and worship that we should. And Lord, as we'll see as we go on this week, because of your grace and your mercy, would you help us to boldly approach your throne of grace with confidence at the same time? Lord, help us to know that in the humble holiness with which you reveal yourself, we have humility and holiness. And help us to understand that well. Father, we love you. We come to you with deep gratitude for your word, for this journey we're about to take together with Moses in this Exodus story, which has been so helpful and instructive to your people through the years, through the millennia. Lord, help us to know you better because we gathered like this, opened your word, and with the Spirit's help, grew in not just our understanding of who you are, but with our transforming work you're doing in our lives to make us like Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.